Well, hello, 11 o'clock service. How are you? Hey, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Rock Peak, and I just want to say a special welcome to you coming out today. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. If you've been here since like you were born, glad you're here too. Those of you joining us online, we just want to say we're glad that you're with us through that platform, but you need to know there's nothing like being in the room together. And so if you haven't gotten a chance to come to the campus, we'd love to have you join us on a weekend. And we got donuts, so there you go. You know, I, this, I'm just going to go off script here for a minute. I was just over in the side of the room when we were in worship, and I just, something I just come to appreciate so much about the 11 o'clock service, more so than any of the other services, is that we have the generations in this room together. And it's so amazing to see that. And so, I, I, yeah, I think it's awesome. And here's my, I'm Gen Z, where are you at? All right, so over here we've got like some of our high school students and, and our young professionals. We've got that generation. And older generations, I want you to pay attention to that because the church of Jesus is strong in this generation. And they are rising up to become his church. And we need to recognize that and cheer them on as they chase after him. And, and younger generations, look at the older generations and say thank you that they have faithfully paved the way for you to step into this. And I think it's a beautiful thing when you see the generations of Jesus in a church together chasing after him. And so, good job, 11 o'clock. Way to show up and be family together. Okay, so those of you that know me, my name is Joel, and you may be like wondering, like, hey, Joel, you look a little bit different today, and I am. So I'm wearing my glasses today. Normally I wear contacts, but I woke up Thursday morning and my, my left eye was just on fire and, and a gunky mess. And I was like, oh, I've got a pink eye. Like, that's never fun. So, you know, like, it's never funny a pink eye because no one wants to look at you in the eyes because they think they'll catch it. <laughs> and it's like, that's not how it works. Science has proven otherwise, but that, whatever. But, so I go to the urgent care to get it checked out. And, and the, the doctor, she's looking at my eye and she's like, oh, no, you don't have a pink eye. You have a corneal abrasion. I'm like, What? And she's like, yeah, like something got in your eye. Like, do you have any, I'm like, I don't know. I have no memory of this. Like my best guess is maybe when Michael chipped his tooth, like it flew into my eyeball. Like, I, I don't know what happened. And so, so she's like, you need to go see like the real doctor, the ophthalmologist. And I'm like, but aren't you a doctor? Apparently they don't all share the same expertise. So she's like, I got eye drops. So I'm going to go see the doctor tomorrow and they'll let me know what this is actually. But I'm just letting you know that there's a little bit funny. So these are my distance glasses when I'm not wearing my contacts, because I'm too cheap to pay for glasses that have the trifocal lenses that I would need. So that means that as I'm teaching today, we're gonna have some fun, because I can see you. I don't know about my notes or the Bible. <laughs> so if I say something that like, that doesn't sound like Jesus, like just know it's probably because he's got bad eyesight today. So I just wanna give you that heads up as we jump into our time of teaching. And so I'm excited. This is week seven of this worldview series that we've been in. So those of you that are brand new, we've been in this series just chasing after this concept of worldviews, the way we see life and try to make sense of life and discover it. And it's been, a, it's been a wild journey. It's been a stretching journey. Hopefully it's been an encouraging journey. It's been trying to say the worldview that Jesus offers, hey, this is probably the best map we could ever hope to find that makes sense of all of reality. And it's, and it's an interesting thing as you chase after life together with other people, as you realize you're running the same race with someone, the more time you spend with someone, a, a cool dynamic begins to develop. I don't know if you've re recognized this in family or friendships that you've done life together, but the more you get to know the person in the race next to you, the more you begin to learn how you can help them look out for themselves. Like, have you ever just noticed that dynamic? Like, you begin to see something in someone else's life that they don't really see about their own life. So like Christy and I, my wife, we've been married long enough to know how to look out for the other person when the other person is driving. Now that creates all sorts of fun dynamics in our relationship, but we've actually saved each other's lives a few times. So a few weeks ago, we were out at the village down in the valley and we were at, uh, having just like a date night and we're leaving the village. And I don't know if you've ever been in that, that parking complex there, but it's not simple. And we're trying to find the exit as we're spinning around. And then we see the exit that takes you out to Topanga Canyon. And it actually takes you like to the sub-basement hallway where you feel like you're going through like an episode of The Walking Dead. You're like, what? Like, we're about to get taken out by Negan or the walkers. Like, something bad's about to happen. And Christy's driving, so she's like, we got to get out of here. And we see the exit, and she's just charging for the exit. Well, I'm trying to get the payment ready to pay for the parking thing. And I realize she's not stopping at the barricade. Like, she's just gung-ho, get us out of here. And so out of love and like 20 years of support of marriage and just, I say in the kindest way I know how, look out, like stop. 
And she's like, and like so we stopped in time and, and I saved her life and arguably my life too. <laughs> but a healthy relationship goes both ways. So years ago, we were driving up Pacific Coast Highway. I was driving back down from the Bay Area back to LA and, and we had rented a car for this drive. And that's such a beautiful drive if you've ever done it. Just those coastal cliffs and there's the Pacific Ocean on the side. And, and, and I am testing the ability of this car that we've rented, like how much it curves. And I, I'm not aware that Christy's like got death grip on the, the, the dashboard, and, but I'm just having a great time. And so coming around one of the curves, I see this car that had been pulled over and there's this guy standing along and I'm like, oh, he's just taking in the scenery. And then everybody's, no, he's, he's, he's standing there peeing into the Pacific Ocean off this 300 foot cliff. I'm like, that's incredible. <laughs> Like how amazing, like, like this is before Instagram, I would have stopped and like posted this on my reels, like thank God I'm a man, look what we can do, like one of those things, like, and I'm just like so taken with this incredible event, and I'm like, Christy, look, and I, I'm not aware that the road is still curving, and so she, in love and gratitude of our relationship, says these words to me, look out, it's like, like and I swerve, and like we almost died, like, like, it's this beautiful dynamic that happens when you get to know someone long enough, you know how to look out for each other, but it also creates its challenges, because no one enjoys the backseat driver, right? Yeah, what's that? I just saw someone elbow someone right now. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Like our, our daughters are, are teenagers now and our oldest is driving, our youngest is paying attention and I get all the great tips from the backseat right now. And I'm like, I'm actually showing you what not to do. I'm trying to like demonstrate other kinds of driving that I learned as growing up in LA. But, but here's something like in my relationship with Christy, like that there's some hard-earned wisdom of 20 years of marriage. When she's looking out for me, how I respond to her reveals a lot about what I believe about her in that moment. Like, do I believe that she's on my side? Do I believe that she's actually got the directions or she's looking at the map correctly? Do I believe she's competent enough to get us in the way that we're going? And it also reveals some things about myself. Like, is, am I able to keep my ego in check enough to let the other voice shape and guide the journey that we're on? Now apply that wisdom to the life of faith. And what does that look like when the fellow sojourner with us isn't just another partner in life, that is Jesus is in the car with us. Am I willing to listen to his voice as I'm going through this journey of life, as I'm driving along? And, and, and when Jesus is throwing out the directions, when Jesus says, look out, will I pay attention? Will I listen to what he has to say? Because here's the thing, Jesus is not just a fellow sojourner on life holding up a map, giving me directions. Jesus is the map maker. And so how I respond to him reveals a lot about what I believe about him. Do I believe you're good? Do I believe I can trust you? Like Jesus, when you say go right and I want to go left, do I really believe that your way is the better way? Or am I going to say, thank you, I got this, and then let's see what happens as I drive off the cliff? And so the question is for us today, are we going to let Jesus speak into our lives, speak into our stories? Are we going to let his worldview shape and inform how we live our lives? And so let's just open ourselves up to this idea like, Jesus, we want to listen to what you have for us today, and we want to hear what you have. And so I'm just going to ask us to pray together as we get started and invite him to come in and do what only he can do. And so, Jesus, we want to come into your presence in this moment, and we just want to acknowledge some things right out of the gate. First, we want to acknowledge that, that you do know more than us, but we don't always like that. You are good, and we don't always believe that. And you want to lead us on the path of life, and we don't always follow. Which is why we need you to speak up. Which is why we need you to come into the story we're living and tell us the truth about life. So today, would you help us hear you? Would we have ears to hear and eyes to see the things that you want to tell us, the things that you want to share with us? Because we do not want to miss what you have for us. And so would we be willing to say, Jesus... We're listening. Lead us on the path of life today. In your name, amen. Amen. So let's get ready to jump into this, this uh, week seven of our Worldview series. And so for those of you that are brand new, we've been in this series for a long time, and it's been a wild ride, a journey of, of growing and stretching and thinking deep. And so a worldview is basically the map by which you chase after reality. And so here's the working definition that we've been using in this series. A worldview is our big picture view of reality. 
and it's based on our deepest assumptions about the most important questions of life. And so that those, are, those are assumptions that we all have on how we think life works and how it's supposed to make sense and how we do that. And so everyone has a worldview, and all worldviews kind of line up to similar kind of belief systems and structures and how we think it works. And so the question, one of the ways that we've been testing various worldviews is this analogy of the map that we've been talking through. So every worldview offers a map. This is how life works. This is the path to follow. And we've been taking those maps and kind of holding them up. And does this correspond with reality? Does this actually work as we try to chase it and live it out? And so is the map that a particular worldview offers an accurate reflection of this trail of life we're all journeying on? And so we've been asking some questions along the way and to say, okay, which of the worldviews seems to offer the best answer to questions like, does truth even exist? And if so, can we even know what it is? Or is morality real or is it just like a social construct that we have morality simply to help us get along at certain points and flourishing as human civilizations? Because if morality isn't actually real, that means there's no real right and wrong. And what one society chooses to do may look very different than what another society chooses to do at a different time and place. And, and you can't really judge between the two because that's just what worked for them, which seems a little suspicious because I don't know about you, but I lock my door at night because I don't trust the morality of the people around me. How about you? Anyone else lock their door? Are you like, no, come in. It'll be great. No. That tells us something about questions like morality. So we've been chasing after these questions and saying, is there something that helps us make sense of the questions that we all ask? And so today we're going to chase a big question. What happens next? Like what happens after death? And is there a worldview that gives us an answer to that question And how do we wrestle with the different worldviews in the answers that gives? And this really matters. It matters because what you believe about the next life fundamentally impacts how you live in this life. And so here's the thing. We're all kind of hoping that we get 80-ish years out of this journey. That's kind of like the average that we're all shooting for. Some of us get less, some of us get more. But here's the thing. Is there something beyond those 80-ish years? Because if not then shoot, eat, drink, and be merry, because someday you're going to die. But if there is more to life than just the sum 80 years, then maybe it makes sense that we leverage these 80 years to impact the life to come. And so I love how C.S. Lewis, in his, his classic work, Mere Christianity, captures the importance of this. And look at what he writes there. He says, if you read history you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next, precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Man, he kind of captures it right there. And so here's the thing, if we're going to follow Jesus well, it matters as we wrestle with this question and how it impacts the way we live our lives. But before we look at how Jesus and the Christian worldview would answer this question, let's look at some other worldviews and basically how they would answer the question, what happens next? And so we're going to look at like, like three examples of this. And the first one would be the, the worldview of naturalism. Now, we've been talking a lot about naturalism over the weeks. Naturalism is kind of the basic belief that all that exists is, the, is physical reality. There's no spiritual reality. There's nothing beyond the physical cosmos. You and I are, are nothing more than highly evolved animals that have come into some kind of like mental consciousness, but that's really all that we are. And so how does naturalism answer the question, well, what happens next? What happens after death? Here's how naturalism answers the question. There is nothing. Death is the end. And so if you were to say, is there a theme song that could go along with this one? I think Queen's song, Another One Bites the Dust, would be the theme song for this one. (laughs) And another one's gone, and another one's gone, and another one bites the dust. Don't, don't, yeah, right? Like, like oh, you guys captured it well. And this is a worldview that permeates our culture, even though we have like, like spiritual, like things in our culture, in general, naturalism so affects our culture. And here's how you know we're impacted by naturalism's view of this, how much we avoid the topic altogether. Because no one wants to talk about this, right? In fact, we, we avoid the issue so much that as we begin to age and we look in the mirror, we do things to trick ourselves into thinking we're not as close as we think we are. That's why Botox sells big. 
Because like, if I can hide the wrinkles, I can live in denial of the fact that the wrinkles tell me I'm closer than I want to be, right? I'm not shaming Botox. Like, I'm sure I'm going to get it at some point in my journey. <laughs> but I'm just saying like, that's an example, right? And so, but here's how naturalism answers the question. It would be for medicinal purposes, guys. Come on, don't judge me. <laughs> but now let, let's move into another worldview realm that we could just call spiritualism. And so this is kind of a big bucket category that would capture the belief that there is something beyond just the physical reality. So Christianity would exist under the umbrella of spiritualism as a specific kind or worldview, and we'll get to that in a minute. But let's talk about two kind of strands within spiritualism that are very popular in our world today, especially our culture. And we'll just call this like option one would be this. That what happens, how does spiritualism in this view answer the question what happens next? And it's this, after death, it's the return of the self into the one. Whatever the one may be. It's the, the idea of like the, the, this cosmic consciousness of some sort. And so there would there's, be a lot of elements of Buddhist thought that would be in this category. And so that, that, the idea is that like, like self is actually just the illusion you and I don't really exist, and the goal of long-term enlightenment of some sort is that we would be dissolved into this universal consciousness of some sort. Now, what's really interesting when you compare naturalism to this first option under spiritualism is that if you look at how they both end in their story, effectively, they end the same way. Naturalism says when you die, game over. This kind of spiritualism says that the goal is for you to be dissolved into the one so you would ultimately cease to exist. It's almost like a spiritual form of atheism. It's a fascinating thing when you see it from that angle. But that's how they would answer the question. Then there's another kind of option that's very popular in our belief today uh, that under spiritualism, and it would be, okay, so what happens after death? What's next? It would be this. The rebirth of the self in the cosmic cycle. And so this would be the concepts of reincarnation, would be very popular in this view, in this answer. And so there'd be streams and thoughts of Hinduism that would follow after this kind of thinking. And again, you see this so often in our, in our popular imagination. So uh, Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time, that book series in the, the tragic adaptation on Amazon of that book series, is, is one of those things that would follow this kind of concept, this, this wheel of time that we were just there. So in this view, we have all lived thousands of lifetimes and we will potentially live a thousand more lifetimes, but we don't always remember those in between, like we're in between lifetimes right now. And so it's just an interesting way that they would answer the question. And so we, we're just gonna get another spin in the cycle. And so, you know, we may know each other in previous lives, we may know each other again. And so we have all these like romantic stories around this, like we've been lovers for a thousand lifetimes. And some of you are like, no way. <laughs> but that's the idea with this. And so these are very different ways of answering the question, what happens next? And yet what's amazing when you really look at these, they all have something in common, a similarity that has serious implications for how we view life. And here's what they all have in common there are no ultimate consequences in life. Just stop and let that just kind of hit for a minute. So you take the, the worldview of naturalism. If naturalism is true, that means there is no real morality. There is no real right and wrong. There's just what certain societies have deemed is culturally the social contract and things like that. But it's not truly right or wrong. It's just it was good for us for a season in time. And so if naturalism is true and death is the end, it doesn't matter how you live your life because there is no morality. So if this is the map we're being given, how does that map hold up to reality? Well, you, you, let's, just, let's just apply that thinking to things in the past. We go back to the last century and you look at like, like Nazi Germany. Well, what Hitler did wasn't really wrong. If we were to say there was any failure in what Hitler did, here was his failure. He wasn't strong enough to get away with it. But I don't know about you, but when I visit the Holocaust Museum, I walk out of that heavy, not thinking, man, Hitler, you should have done better. I walk out of that thinking, you're evil. You've done something wrong. This is not good. But if naturalism is true, there are no consequences. That's heavy, right? Now look at the other ones. The first, first one under spiritualism. Well, if that is true, if that's the map we're given, there are no consequences because it doesn't matter what you do because you don't exist, you're just an illusion. And the more that you think you exist, the more that you create the problems in the world. And the goal is to get rid of this sense of self and to be absorbed into the one. 
And again, does that map hold up? Because I don't know about you, but when I'm driving on the freeway and someone cuts me off and they tell me I'm number one, that does not feel like an illusion. That feels like a like, challenge accepted. I'm going into turbo mode. Let's do this, right? Like, like there's something in us that looks at that that just doesn't seem to hold true to reality. And then with the second option under spiritualism, this rebirth, this constant cycle, well, there is no consequence because what that means, there's ultimately nothing wrong in life. We're just going through a series of learning lessons to take with us into the next life. And, and I remember really encountering this once years ago when, when Christy and I were, were in our early years of marriage and she was finishing up college and so she was taking this world religions course at the time. And so one of the assignments coming out of this world religions course was that you had to go and visit a different kind of religious experience than whatever you grew up in or whatever. And I remember I was so disappointed when she told me this. I'm like, Cause can't we just go to our church and you can check the box? And she's like, it doesn't work. Like, we have to go visit something else. So I'm like, okay. So we went and visited an, uh, an Eastern thought religion that had been kind of brought into Western Christianity or Western um, culture. And so we went down to Encinitas. We were living in San Diego at the time, and we visited a self-realization fellowship on a Sunday. And it was a fascinating experience. Because I remember we go into like a much smaller room than like what we're in, but it felt like I was walking into like a Baptist church. Like I grew up going to a Baptist church. So all the men are dressed in suits and all the women are dressed really nice, like totally unlike how we do it here. (laughs) But I'm like, oh, this feels so familiar. And we sat in pews in this room. And it was like, oh, this is so what we do as Americans. We take, we, we just appropriate other cultures and make it our own. So this is our version of taking an Eastern thought and making it a Western experience. And and so we're in that room sitting there. And then on the back wall, they had all these pictures of different, different gurus and spiritual guides. And so like, oh, there's Gandhi. Like I recognize him. And then there was Jesus on the wall. And I remember like, I know him. I know that guy. Like, okay, like, so what, what is this all about? And, and we sang hymns like to this old organ. And, and it was just this, again, it felt so much like I was in my old school Baptist church. And, and then the, the, the teacher, the, the guide came up to give the lesson and the the, the sermon or whatever you would maybe call it in that context. And, and it was fascinating because he was actually teaching out of the gospels, the gospel of Luke about Jesus. And he was teaching where Jesus is on the cross and he's crying out and he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he gives up his spirit with a loud like sigh. And, and what he was saying is that this was the Christ consciousness returning to the greatest consciousness there is. And I remember like, I, I, I don't think that's what that means. But I understand how you're trying to frame it within, within the context in which you see the world. But I'm like, I, I think the Christians, I feel like you're stealing our stuff. <laughs> and then he began to just do this teaching on here are things that we forget between lives on the reincarnation wheel. And it was fascinating because like my first question was, well, wait a second, if we forget these things, then who remembered so that we can talk about it right now? But I understand, like, but I'm open to spiritual, like, because I believe that Jesus comes and tells me things I don't understand. So, okay, like, like, just, I'm listening. Tell me what you've got. And, and he just starts to list these things, and it was just fascinating. And then he comes to this one soundbite that hit the room. And this was the soundbite. In life, there are no mistakes. There are only lessons. And I'm telling you, it was fascinating, because I felt that whole room just collectively go, because it felt so good to think through my whole life and all the things that every time I cut you off on the freeway, dude, that was just a lesson. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, it was such, like, what it did is it basically let all of us take ourselves off the hook for every decision we made. And I just remember as he, he, he was sharing that, I just kind of like, I pick it up, I'm like, okay, but does this map hold true to reality? And as he was talking, I was reflecting on something that was going on down in San Diego, this horrific case that was being tried where this this man had kidnapped a six-year-old girl from the the house right next door and taken her out and for days had done horrific things until he killed her brutally. And I just remember thinking, how, how does this hold up to that? Like, do we, do we just go to this little girl and say, hey, there are no mistakes. This was just a lesson. I just say, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't sign off on that. Because there is darkness and evil in this world that's more than just a lesson. It's wrong. And as I was wrestling with this, I began to realize with all of these worldviews, if there are no consequences to life, 
then there is no hope for ultimate meaning or purpose in life. But even deeper and darker than that, there is no hope for ultimate justice in life. Because if there are no consequences to the choices we make, then there is no one who will one day set the world right. Which means that in the end, the monsters win because they will get away with every dark thing they've ever done. Which means that there is no incentive to not be a monster because there is no reward for choosing the good. That seems crazy to me. And see, what we need, what we desperately need in the story of us is someone who is good. Like in the fullest sense of that word, somebody who is strong and powerful and trustworthy, someone who is good enough to bring justice into our world, somebody who will bring the hope of healing and restoration for all the hurts that we've experienced, and somebody who will capture and deal with the wrongs as they've been done in this world. And if there's a worldview that doesn't allow for that, it doesn't seem to line up with what we desperately, intuitively recognize we need. Which is why we have to be careful about the worldviews we embrace and the maps that we follow because though they may feel good at a certain level, they may not be leading us to the place we want to go. This is why in the Proverbs, the wisdom literature of the scriptures, Proverbs 14, 12, it says this. It says, there is a way that seems right to a person but in the end, it leads to death. Okay, that's a terrifying proverb. You know why it's so scary? The end part is scary, but you know what's terrifying? It's the first part. There is a way that seems right to a person. What that means is that I could be going through life thinking I've got the right map and it's wrong, and I may not even realize it, which should cause us to say, maybe we need to do some reflection and thinking and not just be skipping down the road. In fact, this proverb is in Proverbs 14, 12, and it's also repeated again in Proverbs 16, 25. It's almost like the wisdom teachers were like, hey, just in case you missed it, (laughs) it's possible that you might be going down a road that you think is the right one, and it's not. And so as we wrestle with these worldviews and these questions that we're answering, it's so important that we're willing to weigh in and ask the questions, is there something that tells the story that fits reality better? Which brings us then, what about Christianity? Because Christianity has a very different answer to the question, what happens next? And the reason why is because Jesus speaks a lot about the life to come. And first and foremost, what we discover is that there is a deep-seated hope embedded in the story because Jesus has come to deal with the mess, which is why he's the hope of the world which is why we worship him. We just don't sit and have academic conversations about him. And you see this as Jesus was on the scene in the way he would teach and interact with people. There's this powerful story in John's account of life of Jesus in John chapter 11. I just encourage you to read this on your own time. But what's going on here is that Jesus has gotten word that one of his closest friends is sick, his buddy Lazarus. And what's crazy is Jesus actually intentionally waits so that when he shows up, he knows Lazarus will be dead because Jesus is about to do something incredible. But then we get to this moment when Jesus shows up and Lazarus' sisters are grieving and weeping and one of his sisters, Martha, comes up to Jesus and she's like, Lord, if only you could have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus' response is, your brother will live again. And Martha says, I I know he'll, he'll live again one day in the resurrection. And then Jesus says, no, listen, Martha, John 11, 25 through 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And so here's how Christianity, because of Jesus, answers the question, what happens next? Death is not the end of the story. There's hope in the story. And you see Jesus unpacking this over and over again as he's there. And in John 3, we see this epic conversation that Jesus is having with one of the religious leaders in his day, this guy named Nicodemus. I don't know if any of you have been watching the Chosen TV show at all, but Nicodemus is a prominent character in that. And it's just fascinating to see him wrestling with what he's discovering about Jesus. And so Nicodemus, in this John chapter 3, he comes to have this clandestine conversation with Jesus 
because he's kind of worried that if he gets too close to Jesus, it's going to hurt his street cred and his positions of power. Have you ever done that with Jesus? Like, Jesus, I kind of like you, but I think you're going to mess up my career. So can we just kind of talk offline over here? You know what the amazing thing is? Jesus will. He's like, okay, let's meet over here, but I'm going to challenge you about what's really most important. And when you see this going on here with Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3, this is what we read. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, how can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. And here's Jesus beginning to explain to Nicodemus, here's what I've come to do. I've come to bring new life, and it's going to be through my sacrifice and my resurrection. I will give you the hope of new life. And what Jesus promised that he would do is that when we give our life to him, he would put the spirit of God within us to bring us back to life. This is what he's talking about here. And Nicodemus is like, (laughs) and so so he goes on and he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to you what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. And this was a messianic title that Jesus took for himself. So you read in the Old Testament, God's promise of a rescuer who's to come and he's often referred to as the son of man. And here's Jesus saying, it's me. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then these very famous words. Tell me, have you ever heard John 3.16 before? Some of you? Okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to guess most of us have heard these words at least at one point or another, or at least you saw this in a football game once upon a time, right? Because very popular, like, we'll put, like this gets thrown up a lot. It's like, here's the good news, here's the good news. But what we have to recognize is John 3.16 is in the middle of an epic conversation about eternal things, and it doesn't end in John 3.16 because it continues John 17 and following, John 3.17 and following. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, believes in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I mean, this is an epic conversation with serious implications. And and I think like as I'm listening to this, I'm like, Jesus, you're, you're saying some things like, like have to be born again, that, that there's this, this, sounds like there's this need of rescue. I, if I was just kind of like leaning in, if I stumbled into the Starbucks conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus were having, I'd be like, Jesus, it sounds like you think there's something wrong with me. And I think Jesus would say, yes. Like, like Jesus, it sounds like there's something going, like, and I think my question would be like, Jesus, like what, what happened to us that you're saying things like, like will not perish and having to save the world? Like, have you, just, have you ever encountered someone and you just know something's wrong and you're just kind of like, bro, what happened to you? Come on. You know, like, there's the elbows again, once more, right? <laughs> and it's really easy to see in someone else's story that something's happened, right? 
But it's a lot harder to let that question hit our own stories. And yet, if we were to ask the question, Jesus, just, just hit me plain, like, what's going on? What's, what's happening in my story? We would see that the scriptures have been telling a story that, hey, friends, something happened to us. And we see this from the very beginning story in the scriptures. And in Genesis 1 and 2, you see that God was busy doing some amazing things and just showing off how cool he was and creating this world and, and bringing things into existence, speaking, and life would happen. And, and he comes to the pinnacle of his creation, and he creates us, our first parents. We're told that forming us from the dust of the earth, he, he breathed the breath of life, and we became living beings. And we're told that we were created in his image male and female, created in the image of God so that we would know him and reflect him in this world, that we could walk with God and point out his goodness and portray his goodness to the world around us. We were created for greatness. And it's a beautiful picture. And it goes great for like half a chapter, right? Because then we hit Genesis chapter three and we see something tragic happens. This interloper enters into the story. We're told that the serpent comes into the garden. And in that moment in Genesis 3, we don't really know who the serpent is. Later on, we'll see Jesus tell us who it is. He'll say that was Satan coming in. And we don't fully know from the Genesis story, like Satan somehow existed before we were created. So somehow there was some rebellion in God's good creation. And so now Satan's coming in the story because he's wanting to take out the good things God has created. And so he's coming after our first parents. And in that story, we're told that God, God's first command to the human race are these words. You are free to enjoy everything I've created for you. There's just one thing that's not for you, that there's this tree that somehow represents this knowledge of good and evil. And God's like, this is not meant for you. It's not what I want for you. This will actually destroy you. This will kill you. The day you eat of this, you're going to die. And so there they are living in paradise in God's good world. And this serpent comes in and begins to spin the story. And it's crazy because he doesn't have to drag them to the tree. He just finds them hanging out around the tree. You know, like when toddlers, you're like, don't do this. And then where do they go, right? It's like there's something in us that like we're drawn to the thing we're not supposed to. And, and so then the serpent begins to spin the lie and flat out contradicts God. You will not die. Maligns God's character. God's holding out on you. God knows that if you eat this, you'll become like him, which was such a tragedy because they were already like him. They were created in his image. And we see in that moment that our first parents bought the lie and they defied God. And then everything God warned them would happen, happened. That they experienced death. They died in that moment. And I know what some of you are saying, like, Joel, no, they didn't die. They go on to live beyond that. No, they experienced death. Death in Hebrew means separation. And in that moment, they experienced death on all fronts. They experienced death, separation with their own understanding of their identity because suddenly their innocence is lost and now their identity is shame. They experience death in their separation of their relationship with one another because now they need to hide their nakedness from one another. They experience death and separation in their relationship with God because when God comes into the garden to sing, instead of running to delight in him, they run out of fear from him. And there in that moment, what happened to us? We walked away from God and we died. There's a brokenness in each of our stories because of that first moment. And there you see God meeting with them and this incredible conversation happens. It's almost like God's giving them a chance to own up to it. But instead, Adam blames the woman and blames, blames God. And then Eve's stuck. Well, he already blamed you and me. So she's got to blame the serpent. And so then God's like, okay, now I'm going to send you out of this place I created for you. And we look at that and we think God's being punitive in that moment. No, he's being protective because he knows he doesn't want them to eat from the tree of life because it would be to their damage to live in immortality and brokenness. And so he sends them out of the garden, but with a promise, a promise of rescue. He says, from the offspring of the woman, I will send one into the story and he will crush the head of the serpent. He will defeat the darkness. He will overcome, but it will come with cost because the serpent will strike his heel. There will be a sacrifice involved in the rescue. And so here's Jesus in this conversation with Nicodemus generations later. Nicodemus, I'm, I'm the answer. I'm the one who's come to fulfill the promise. I'm the one who's come to give rescue. And for those who believe in me, their destiny has changed forever. And so what happens after death? The Christian answer is, Death is not the end of the story because Jesus overcame death and he was resurrected. Then all of us have the hope of resurrection. We will all be raised up to eternal life, but it doesn't mean the same destiny. We will be all raised up to eternal life together with God 
or separated from God. And we see Jesus talking about this time and time again as he's coming to give us the, the, the promise of rescue, but at the same time he's saying, look out. So there's this famous story that Jesus will teach, one of his parables. These, these parables are stories that he would tell to paint a picture of a spiritual reality. And so in Matthew 25, he begins this famous parable about sheep and goats. And he says this, when the son of man, referring to himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And if you keep reading that story, you realize that the eternal destinies are very different for those two groups of people. And so we talk about the reality of eternal life that Jesus promises us. We cannot talk about that without also talking about the reality of this thing called hell. And friends, this is where it gets heavy. This is where it gets uncomfortable. This is where many of us just want to bail and say we're out. I don't like this story. But what we have to learn to do is wrestle with the hard things. We have to learn to do this because if we don't, that means that we'll only settle for a happy, clappy kind of faith that has no substance and actually cannot sustain us in the world of brokenness we live in. And so we need to go beyond that because we need to learn to discern the truth because truth is powerful. Jesus said this about the truth, John 8. He said, if you will hold to my teachings, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? It will set you free, which means we need to wrestle with truth because there's freedom to be found in the truth Jesus wants to tell us. So we need to learn to wrestle with this because it matters, and it matters a great deal. And one of the beautiful things about wrestling with your faith is that it can lead you into freedom. Like it can lead you out of the bondage of bad theology. So theology is the understanding of God. So if we have a misunderstanding or a bad understanding of God, that results in bad theology. And bad theology leads to all sorts of really bad ways of living life. And so what we have to learn to do with all of our beliefs is to think and discern and at sometimes even deconstruct those beliefs that we have received so that we can learn to think and believe more correctly as we reconstruct those beliefs in light of truth. This last week, Christy and I went out for lunch together, and we went and had pokey for the very first time. I don't know if you've ever had pokey before, but this was my first experience, and it was phenomenal. But we walk into the place, and, and right away, the, the woman at the counter is like, hey, do you have any questions? And I'm like, what is pokey? <laughs> And so she said, do you like sushi? I was like, yes, I love sushi. And she said, pokey is sushi deconstructed. And the minute she said that, I'm like, I get it. I understand exactly what's going on here. Yes, please, to all of it. <laughs> but it would be amazing if we went into that place and she said, she said hey, pokey is sushi deconstructed. So she takes sushi and she deconstructed it, left it on the counter, showed it to us, and we're like, oh, thank you, and walked out and didn't eat lunch that day. And see, that's the danger with some of us when it comes to this idea of deconstructing, is that we'll take the beliefs that we've had and we'll deconstruct them, but we'll never actually rebuild them to a better faith. And so it's a very dangerous practice. It's so popular in Christianity today. I'm just going to deconstruct. I'm just going to ask the questions, but I'm never going to actually land in a place where I bring my faith back and have something solid that I'm following Jesus in. And so we have to be wise in how we do this because it's never healthy to dismiss something simply because we do not like it. Can you imagine applying that logic when you go see the doctor? And yet it's an important thing that we learn to do this because there have been certain beliefs in my journey that I have grown out of, that I've left behind because I've come to realize who I learned them from. Like I've come to learn that there are certain beliefs that the only reason I held them is because it was what someone had said, but it actually never came from God. And those are good beliefs to leave behind. So here's a real silly one, but it's pretty popular and it was rocking my world in my 20s. A belief I had to leave behind was this. When it comes to relationships, there is only one person God has for you. Have you ever heard this before? Yeah, and so it's like, oh, okay, so as a, as a single 20-year-old, I was neurotic about, like, am I going to find the right person or not? And what if I marry the wrong person and I throw off the system for every other human being on the planet? Like the domino effect, right? Like, like it was, an, and so, like, nowhere does it say that. 
Now, the idea behind it is it's trying to hold up God's sovereignty, that God, like God has a will, and if we can follow it, that's great. But, but that actually is bad theology that leads to bad practice because I have had friends abandon their spouse when it gets hard because they were the wrong person and they needed to go find the right person God had for them. Whew. And you're expecting God to bless that? You know when Christy became the one for me? When we stood together before God and friends and said, I do. That's when she became the one. Because that's when we made a commitment to one another. And I'm telling you, she married the wrong person. Because <laughs> I'm a work in progress. Guess what? She was the wrong person too. But the way we become the right person is that we learn to commit and fight for each other even as we learn to fight with each other. And let God do something new in our story. But if I adopted the one theology, I'm telling you, we would not have 20 years together. And so sometimes it's important to shed bad theology, but I need to tell you, there have also been some beliefs that I've wrestled with that I couldn't let go of because of who I learned them from. And hell is one of those beliefs I've had to hold on to because I learn about hell from Jesus. And see, here's what we need to realize, that Jesus talks about the reality of hell more than any other person in the Bible. So Jesus will reference Hades and hell over a dozen times. Jesus will talk about eternal life over two dozen times. More often than not, he's talking about the life God has for us, but he'll often talk about eternal fire and eternal punishment. And the word eternal he uses for both of those is the exact same word. Jesus will talk about hell being a place of outer darkness three times, a place that will somehow be outside of what God's new life he wants to create. And he'll use the words weeping and gnashing of teeth seven times to describe what it will be like. And as we wrestle with this with Jesus, that puts a serious wrinkle in the modern notion that's so popular today, that hell was a later invention by the church. It's like, no, no. Now, sure, the church has gotten hell wrong over the centuries, and sure, the church has used hell as a weapon, but just because they've misused it doesn't mean it's not a real thing. And so what we have to wrestle with is that this ultimately comes from Jesus, which means we better make sure we understand what he's talking about, if we're going to understand this well. And so as you press into the things that Jesus talks about, here's what we discover. That according to Jesus, hell is a real place created to protect his creation from those with a defiant posture. And so let's just spend a moment unpacking those big ideas of a place of protection from those with a defiant posture. And so whenever you, you, you see Jesus talking about the idea of hell, like here's an example in Matthew 10, 28. Here's Jesus talking about this reality. He goes, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I mean, that's a heavy teaching. It's like, Jesus, what's the point of that? Basically, I think what he's saying is if fear is gonna be the primary motivator for you in life, make sure you fear the right person. But there he mentions this word hell. And so we translate that word in the Greek into this English word hell. And the Greek word is this word Gehenna. And when Jesus is talking about Gehenna, he's referring to the garbage dump right outside the city of Jerusalem. And so a lot of people will say, like, see, it's not real. He was just talking about a garbage dump. No, he's talking about the garbage dump because he's trying to paint a picture of a spiritual reality. That this is a very dark place that you don't want to go to. And Gehenna, this garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, had a dark history in the nation of Israel's past. And so you, you go into the big story of God showing up and calling a people to himself, identifying the nation of Israel as his people. He covenants with them. I will be your God. You'll be my people. Walk faithfully with me and I will bless you. And through you, I will reveal myself to the world. Through you, I'm going to bring the rescuer, the Messiah. And you see throughout the Old Testament stories that they would walk in faithfulness with God and turn from God. They'd have good kings and bad kings, good kings that would turn the people's hearts to God and bad kings that would lead the people away. And so this garbage dump that was in Jesus' day back in their history became a place where the people would turn from God and worship other gods in the Valley of Hinnom. And you read God's, God's crying out and calling out in Genesis, or Jeremiah 7.30 there. Because what they would often do in their darkest days is they're, the, the kings of Israel would take the children of Israel, literally the small children, into the valley of Hinnom and sacrifice them to the god Moloch. 
This was a place of darkness. And so Jesus is saying that hell is going to be a place where all the darkness is going to be cast out and it will no longer have power in the world that God wants to renew. Because it's ultimately a place of protection. Because it was never meant to be our destiny. It was a place of protection where Satan would be imprisoned. Because in this, this parable of the sheep and goats, Jesus says these powerful words, Matthew 25, 41. Then he says to those on his left, talking about the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for who? The devil and his angels. That this was meant to be the place of imprisonment for the destructive force in the universe that is opposed to who God is. It was never meant for us. We'll talk about why it became our destiny in just a minute, but this is where it was created for. Then ultimately, it's a place of, about a posture, a defiant posture. And so Jesus will talk about this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's an example of it, Matthew 25, 30. It's a parable of the, 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 the master who entrusts his, his wealth to his servants, and some of them do well and one does it. And so he says, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so often we read that with modern ears thinking, oh, that's, oh, those poor people with this, this repentant posture and, and God's just like, no, forget you. But the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth as described in, in the Bible is not about repentance, it's about ongoing defiance. And so when you see Jesus's arrest and his trial with the religious leaders before they hand him over to Pilate, they're trying to indict him on some form of blasphemy. And so they're, they're just questioning him. And then finally they say, like, is it true? And Jesus just confirms, like, I've come from God. I'm the Messiah. And they have none of it. And we're told that they tear their clothes and they gnash their teeth at him. That it's this ongoing idea of just there. Luke 16 is a powerful parable that Jesus tells about a rich dude and this poor man named Lazarus who both are going through life. And the rich man is enjoying all his stuff and ignoring every opportunity to help around him. And Lazarus is this poor guy that suffers horribly. And they both die and they wake up in the next life. And Lazarus is in the arms of Abraham, the father of the Israel faith. And he's being comforted and solaced because of all the pain he goes through. And the rich dude is on the wrong side of the divide and he's in torment and anguish. And it's fascinating as Jesus tells the story because the rich dude sees Lazarus and he says, Abraham, send Lazarus over here to dip his finger in water to quench my tongue because I'm in anguish. And it's a, it's a crazy posture because instead of saying, Abraham, please bring me out of this place, he demands that Lazarus comes in and serves him still. Do you see the, the, the posture? And that's what's going on here. And see, hell was created as a place of containment for Satan and his demons. And we understand the need for that when we see the darkness in our world. Do you remember about like eight years ago when it was just arising in, in the national awareness of Joseph Kony in the Lord's Resistance Army in northern Uganda? Do you remember this? The children's soldiers, the, the wicked, horrible things that were going on that this dude was just rat wreaking havoc in Africa and he was going from village to village, killing the parents, taking the children, forcing them to serve in his army, forcing the children to kill their parents. I mean, horrific things were going on. And I just remember as this was surfacing in the thing, I'm just like, can no one stop this? Like what on earth is the United Nations for? Like where is SEAL Team 6? Someone go in and contain this because it's horrible. And that's the idea here that we understand that. And so God, are you going to deal with Satan? Or are you going to get this enemy put away? And he's like, yes, I've created a place. His destiny is secured. But see, when our race fell, we, we fell when we embraced Satan's lie in Genesis chapter three. That means that we threw in our lot with him when we trusted him instead of trusting God. We experienced death in that moment and Satan's future became our future. Friends, we are not victims of a dysfunctional God. We are culprits rebelling against a good God. And we have to understand that because we like to play the first card all day long. And when we do that, what we're actually doing is gaslighting God. The first recorded instance of gaslighting in the Bible is Adam. When God shows up and says, what happened? You know what Adam says? The woman you gave me God, this is your fault. And we've been playing his card ever since. And the reality is we need to understand that we're the culprits. And so God gives us over to ourselves. He gives us over to the choices that we make in life, our choice to turn from him. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter one, how we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for all sorts of silly things. And God gives us over to the choices of ourselves. 
which is a terrifying reality if you think about that. Like we think we want freedom from you, God, and God's like, go for it, good luck with that. Any of you who have ever struggled with addiction understand to be given over to your brokenness is hell on earth. Now imagine an eternal life of being given over to yourself. But see, in the end, evil needs to be contained because God is good, which means he has to deal with us and our brokenness because, friends, we joined Coney's army. We need to be contained. And it's our choice. These are heavy things. And as we wrestle with this, there's a book I would highly recommend for you as you choose to wrestle with this in your own journey. It's called The Skeletons in God's Closet by a pastor named Joshua Ryan Butler. And listen to what he says about this. I think he captures it so well. He says, most folks I know want sex trafficking and genocide eradicated forever. And many give their lives working toward this end. This demonstrates that we are not so far from the Christian doctrine of hell as we might think. There are things we want gone, damaging forces we long to be banished so that our world can flourish. An atheist lawyer may protest vociferously on the injustice of hell and simultaneously fight to keep thugs and rapists off the streets. His actions ironically demonstrate the biblical story's logic of hell. That for our world to flourish, there are some harmful powers that must be kept at bay. And there is good news for our world. God is going to kick sex trafficking and genocide out of it, but there is a rub. He is more serious about it than we are. The spark that sets the wildfire lives in us. The root of the wicked tree is in our hearts. The poison spring from which the deadly waters flow is not just out there, it is in here. The problem is us. Wow. And see, we desperately need a world in which there is consequences to the choices that people make. Otherwise, there is no hope of purpose or meaning, but there's also no hope of justice in the world if there are no consequences. And the hope that that God will one day right the wrongs and end evil, and that is our hope because in his goodness, God will deal with the mess, but it's also our biggest dilemma because it means he has to deal with us. And we cannot have it both ways. A God who is so good that he will deal with the mess while at the same time turning a blind eye to our mess making. That is not a good God. We need a God who will show up. And see, hell exists as a place of consequences for the choices we make in life. And because God is good, he will hold us accountable for our choices. And he will honor the choice of those who do not want to be with him which means that ultimately hell will be locked from the inside. Which is why when Jesus shows up on the scene, look out, I've come to fulfill the promise of rescue. I've come to bring the hope of something new. It's why in his famous teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say this in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. He'll say, enter through the narrow gate." For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So how do we find it? Like how do we find this narrow road that leads to life? Like how does God help us? Like, how does God deal with our mess and at the same time offer us the hope of new life? And friends, here's the greatest hope we could ever know. His name is Jesus. That's how God helps us. Jesus shows up on the story. When Jesus goes to the cross, that wasn't an accident. That was an intentional act of love and redemption for us. That when Jesus goes to the cross, he embraced our death in that moment, our separation. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He embraced our separation and our death, and then he defeated death so we could have the hope of new life so that when we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, can I have something new? He's like, give me your life, and I will, it will die with me, and I will give you a new life, the one I resurrected to offer you. And that is the hope that we have, that Jesus changes the story forever that our identity is not lost or broken. Our identity is found and saved, loved by God. That's why Paul will write in Romans 6, 23, these powerful words. For the wages of sin is death. 
I mean, stop, think about the implication of those words. Wages is something you earn. I don't know about you, but when payday comes, if my check is not in the box or my direct deposit isn't there, I'm calling HR and saying, what happened? Because that's something I've earned. And what Paul is saying is that the life that we have lived has earned us separation from God because of our choices. Thank God he doesn't end the sentence there. Thank God he keeps going for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Because that's our hope. And so friends, we're talking about heavy things today. Can I have permission in this moment with you? Will you let me for just a moment be the backseat driver? Can I just raise my hand and say, friend, look out. Because the path you're on may not be taking you where you want to go. So here's my question for you to consider today. Whose map are you living by? And is it a map that's going to lead you to life? Because as we're on this broad highway altogether, there is glitz and glamour and distraction and so much fun to chase after. But younger generations, ask the older generations if that road is really offering everything it says it is. Ask the older generation if they found what they've been looking for for decades on end chasing that road. Because if we can grab hold of that wisdom, we can already see it's a dead end. And maybe, just maybe, if we're willing to look down the road, we'll see off to the side, there's, a, there's someone standing there saying, friends, this way. Friends, this way. And there's Jesus waving us down. I've got a new path. It's a narrow road. Do not miss the exit. But if you find it, if you follow me, it's a path that will lead you into life. It will lead you into freedom. It will lead you into forgiveness. It will lead you into hope. It will lead you into all things you're longing for. Friends, turn the wheel and come this way. And so whose map are you following today? And so here today in this space, we're gonna celebrate this incredible gift of Jesus by taking part in the gift Jesus gives us called communion. And communion is how we celebrate him and what he's done for us. Like we're told that that night that he was betrayed, the night he was gonna to go to the cross, Jesus is celebrating an epic meal with his first friends. Together as Jews in the first century, they're celebrating the Jewish Passover, which was this beautiful celebration of God's faithfulness and deliverance of their people in ancient times out of Egypt. And in the middle of this meal that's celebrating God's rescue and deliverance, Jesus says, basically, it's all been about me the whole time. And he takes the elements from the meal. He takes the bread and he says, this is my body. It's broken for you. Broken for you so that you no longer have to live a life of brokenness because I've come to do something new. And he takes the cup, the wine, and he says, this is my blood. It's going to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. I am the sacrifice. I will crush the head of the serpent, and I will pay the price. He will strike my heel so that you are no longer defined. You no longer belong to him. I'm rescuing you. I'm setting you free. And so we come to the tables to be reminded that he's in the story now. And our destinies have been changed forever. And so as we go into this time, I just, I just want to invite you to step into this moment. And, and maybe you're here and, and you're just kind of wrestling with the things that we're talking about. And you're like, I don't really know where I stand with this. I don't know where Jesus And if you're going to be just totally honest, you're going to say, I don't even know if I like the stuff you're talking about today. And can I just say, I'm with you? I don't like it either. But the question isn't whether we like it or not. The question is, is this truth? And will we wrestle with it enough to see if it's a truth that Jesus wants to set us free from? Set us free for something new. And all I would encourage you to do is to say, go with him and find out. See what he wants to do. And if you want to step off of the wide road onto the narrow road today, it begins with a declaration of faith. Jesus, I believe in you. 
Jesus, I want to come. I'm, I'm going to give you my life the best I know how. Can you give me a new life? Would you forgive me and set me free today? And if you want that, just say those simple words to him and come to the table and step into new life with Jesus today. And then for those of us that are here and we'd say, we're, we're, we're stumbling down that narrow road the best we know how. And friends, sometimes I just feel like I'm barely crawling on that road. How about you? This is why we do communion, to be reminded that he is on the road with us, empowering us to chase after that life with him. And so we walk to the tables, not with our heads held down. We walk to the tables with our heads held high because Jesus has set us free and his spirit is at work in our lives, empowering us to keep moving down the road of life. And so we keep walking with him. And so we come to the tables realizing that our identity has changed. We are sons and daughters of the King. We hold our heads high here, not out of arrogance, but out of humble gratitude that we have been set free. And so I want to invite you to come to the tables and be reminded of the hope we have because Jesus has come to set us free. And so Jesus, here we are in this moment coming with gratitude, coming with hope coming in desperation asking that you would do something new asking that you would continue doing your good work in us and so we want to meet with you in this place and so we come to the tables to remember you thank you that you have life for us thank you that you've come for us thank you that here in this place we can honor you and pursue you and know that our destinies are forever changed because of you. Amen.